0: Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 86, Family of Rebels. In this episode, we're going to conclude our look at Henry II's reign as ruler of England and Western France. The final years of Henry's reign were consumed with putting down rebellions, but the rebels weren't simply restless nobles. They were also Henry's own children and his wife. So it was a family of rebels the end of Henry's reign also marked the gradual reemergence of English writing. So we'll also look at the first major document composed in Middle English since the end of the Peterborough Chronicle. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com and you can always reach me directly by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com and I'm on Twitter at English Hist Pod. Also, one quick note about Patreon. As you probably know by now, you can sign up to support the podcast at patreon.com. Just go to historyofenglishpodcast.com and link from there. The Patreon site includes bonus mini-episodes, and now it also includes a transcript of each new episode as soon as it's released. I continue to work on the transcripts of old episodes, and I hope to have an update on that in the near future. But for now, transcripts of the new episodes will be available at Patreon. So with that, let's turn to this episode. I'm going to begin by moving the historical narrative forward up to the death of Henry II. Then in the second half of the episode, I'm going to switch gears and look at a very important document that appeared around that time called the Ormulum. But let's begin with Henry II as ruler of England and much of Western France. Over the last couple of episodes, we've seen how Henry pieced together a massive realm. It was so large that later historians called it an empire. It made Henry rich and powerful, and it gave him access to vast resources. It also left him with many enemies along his extensive borders. That included Louis Seventh, the King of France, who was concerned about Henry's power and influence. But Henry's greatest threat came from within. As his sons grew older, They grew impatient, and they started to demand their own pieces of Henry's empire. And when they didn't get what they wanted, they were eager to rebel. So Henry had to manage all of these threats, both foreign and domestic. To trace these developments, we should probably start with the marriage of Henry and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. The marriage had always been a political union, but it produced eight children, five sons and three daughters. The eldest son, named William, died as a small child, so that left four sons, Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and John. Henry and Eleanor's marriage may have had a fairy tale beginning, but it didn't have a happy ending. It was more like a Greek tragedy. The marriage ended in jealousy and separation, warfare, and imprisonment. If Henry and Eleanor ever loved each other, it appears that that affection came to an end by the time Eleanor gave birth to their youngest child, named John. Shortly after John was born in 1166, Eleanor left Henry and returned to Aquitaine. The historical sources don't give a specific reason for the separation, but the most popular theory is that Eleanor was furious with Henry because he was having an open affair with a woman named Rosamund Clifford. The affair is well documented, and by all accounts, Henry had a strong affection for his young mistress. The name Rosamund was an old Germanic name. It combined Germanic root words, meaning horse and protector. But Henry gave the name a new Latin spin. He called Rosamund Rosamundi, which in Latin meant the rose of the world. Again, it isn't clear if the affair was the actual cause of the separation. But shortly after the affair began, Eleanor headed to Aquitaine. Now, as we know, Eleanor was feisty and headstrong. She'd already married and divorced the king of France and now she had married and separated from Henry, the King of England. Despite a troubled history with her husbands, she remained very close to her children, especially her son Richard, later to be known as Richard the Lionheart. Richard also took up residence in Aquitaine, and he helped his mother administer the duchy with expectations that he would one day inherit the region. The year that Eleanor left Henry was the same year that Henry invaded Brittany in northwestern France. And that turned out to be good news for another one of the middle sons of Henry and Eleanor. After that invasion, Henry soon arranged a marriage between his son, Geoffrey, and the heiress to Brittany. This arrangement set up Geoffrey as the future Duke of Brittany. So from this point on, the ultimate division of Henry's empire began to take shape. The two middle sons would each have their own regents. Richard would one day receive Aquitaine in the south of France— and Geoffrey would one day inherit Brittany in the northwest. But most of the empire would pass to the eldest son, named Henry. Of course, that included the northern regions of Normandy and Anjou, and it also included England. So the younger Henry was destined to become the next king of England. Since the king and his son were both named Henry, I'll refer to the son as young Henry to try to keep them separate. So Henry's empire was to be divided between his three oldest sons. But I mentioned earlier that there was also a fourth son named John. It appears that John was originally destined for a life in the church, so no specific land was earmarked for him, at least not at this point. John later became known as John Lackland, and that name, Lackland, came from the fact that he lacked any specific land or territory in his father's realm. But by all accounts, John was Henry's favorite son, so he'll play a big role in our story going forward. These general plans for Henry's succession were finally formalized a couple of years later, in the year 1168. In that year, Henry tried to come to terms with Louis VII, the King of France. Now, as you might remember, both men had been married to Eleanor of Aquitaine, so there was probably some personal jealousy between them. But beyond that, Henry's empire had eclipsed Louis' kingdom in size and power. So Louis was always looking for ways to destabilize Henry's realm, usually by supporting Henry's enemies. So in the year 1168, the two kings tried to settle their differences. They negotiated a peace treaty, which ultimately fell apart. But that treaty is important because it outlined the ultimate division of Henry's empire between his sons. And the agreement did that because Henry's lands in France were technically held as a vassal of the French king, so Henry needed Louis to agree to the division. The agreement stipulated that the eldest son, Henry, a.k.a. young Henry, would receive Normandy, Anjou, and Maine, and he would hold those regions as Louis's vassal. Young Henry would also get Brittany, but he would then turn around and give it to his brother Geoffrey, who would hold it as Henry's vassal. The agreement also stipulated that Richard would one day receive Aquitaine, and he would hold it as Louis's vassal. So that pretty much took care of the future division of Henry's lands in France. But it didn't address the matter of England, because England was held as a separate kingdom. And as I noted, England was also destined to go to the eldest son, young Henry. So a couple of years later, in 1170, two important ceremonies were held. Down in Aquitaine Richard was formally declared the duke of Aquitaine and up in England young Henry was formally proclaimed as the king of England I actually mentioned this ceremony a couple of episodes back in the context of the discussion about Thomas Becket Becket was the archbishop of Canterbury at the time but he was in exile in France so Henry had to get some other church officials to preside over the coronation The important thing to understand about these developments is that young Henry was given a title, but he wasn't really given any power. This was customary practice back in France. These coronations were designed to create an orderly succession, but they weren't intended as a grant of actual power. They were mostly ceremonial. So young Henry now had the title of king, but he was really just a king-in-waiting. A couple of years later, young Henry married the daughter of the French king, Louis Seventh. The marriage had been arranged since they were small children, but it was finally formalized at this point. So young Henry now had two separate connections to the French king. Louis was his wife's father and his mother's ex-husband. Yes, these relationships did tend to get incestuous. And that relationship between young Henry and Louis the French king will become very important as we move forward. So let's focus on young Henry for a moment. He was now technically the king, but king in name only. Even though he didn't have the power and the resources of the king, he tried to live like a king. He kept a large retinue of supporters, including many young nobles and knights. His court was lavish, and he lived well beyond his means. He was known for his largesse, and that's kind of an important term. The term largesse refers to a person's generosity and willingness to make lavish gifts, and it sometimes refers to the actual gifts that are made. Largesse is a noun, but it first appeared in English in its adjective form, the word large. And the word large first appeared around the current point in our story. The original meaning of the word large was generous, bountiful, and liberal in giving. So again, it was the adjective form of the word largesse. These words came from French, and they were important because they were a fundamental part of the emerging code of conduct which came to be known as chivalry. That code of conduct required the knight to defend the weak, to show compassion and courtesy, and to be generous with his supporters by making gifts. In the terminology of the day, he was to provide a largesse. The Latin root of largesse and large meant abundant, and it came to mean abundant gift-giving. And again, the adjective form large meant generous and bountiful. Of course, the word large evolved over time, acquiring a more general sense as something great in size or scope. I mentioned that the word large entered English around this time, so you may be wondering how we know that, given that English writing was so rare during this period. Well, around this time, a series of old homilies or sermons were written down in English. They're called the Lambeth homilies, and they were copied sometime in the 1170s. Since they were copied from earlier Old English documents, the language is primarily Old English, not Middle English. The scribes did update the language in places, rephrasing some old passages and incorporating a few new words here and there. For example, the text is the oldest surviving English document to use the words fruit, oil, prove, and juggler, all from French. You might remember that the word juggler originally referred to a minstrel or all-around entertainer. The text also contains the first known use of Norse words like skill, wing, and thrust. And since this was a collection of sermons, it isn't surprising to find the first known use of certain Latin and French terms associated with Christianity. Those include words like mercy, paradise, passion, and sacrament. And as I noted earlier, the text includes the first known use of the word large in the English language, in that original sense of abundant or generous. And that word large is important because King Henry's son, young Henry, was very large, in the original sense of the word. He was generous, and he provided his supporters with a largesse. But there was one major problem with that. Young Henry had the title of king, but he didn't have the income and resources that typically flowed to the king. So he started to run out of money, and he couldn't maintain a largesse with empty coffers. By early 1173, young Henry was in heavy debt. He became frustrated, and he started to demand some of his inheritance so that he could get access to the income and revenue. But his father refused to relinquish any control. Young Henry's frustrations were fed by his father-in-law, the French king Louis. Louis was trying to sow the seeds of distrust and rebellion. He wanted young Henry to stand up to his father. He hoped that infighting and rebellion would ultimately lead to the breakup of the Angevin Empire. Young Henry's frustrations reached a fever pitch when his father tried to arrange a marriage for the youngest son, John. The arrangement included a wedding gift of three castles lying between Anjou and Maine. John was to receive those castles, but young Henry considered those castles to be part of his inheritance. Young Henry was furious, and within a few days of the castles being granted, he slipped away from Henry's court and rode to Paris. He met with his father-in-law, Louis. And together, they plotted a massive rebellion. Young Henry then got the support of his mother, Eleanor. And she encouraged her other sons, Richard and Geoffrey, to join the rebellion as well. The two brothers soon rode to Paris to join young Henry. So all of that meant that King Henry's three eldest sons and his wife were now united against him. And they were allied with his arch-enemy, Louis Seventh, his wife's ex-husband. And as if that wasn't bad enough, many of Henry's other enemies along his borders soon joined in. That included the Counts of Flanders, Boulogne, and Blois. It eventually included the King of the Scots as well. His name was William the Lion, and he was still upset that Scotland had been forced to return the northern English counties of Northumberland and Cumberland after the anarchy. So he saw the rebellion as an opportunity to reclaim those lands for Scotland. For King Henry, it probably looked like the entire world had allied against him, and his chances of victory looked slim. The war began when the rebels invaded Normandy in July of 1173. The conflict soon spread into Brittany, and then into England. In November, a few months after the revolt began, Eleanor headed from Aquitaine to Paris to join her sons, and her ex-husband. But along the way, she was intercepted and captured by Henry's men, and she was immediately thrown in prison. But Eleanor's confinement didn't stop the rebellion. Battles raged on both sides of the Channel. In England, most of the important nobles didn't join the rebellion. They had too much to lose in another anarchy, so that allowed Henry to secure his position there. As I noted last time, Henry had settled his disputes with most of the Welsh nobles prior to his invasion of Ireland, so they never joined the rebellion either. In 1174, the rebels tried to take control of England. William the Lion invaded from Scotland, and then the Count of Flanders announced his intention to invade from across the Channel. He sent an advanced force into East Anglia. But Henry confronted the rebels, and he managed a decisive victory. Henry's supporters then defeated the Scots and captured their king, William the Lion. The other rebels in England soon surrendered. So Henry then headed back across the Channel to Normandy, and he defeated the remaining rebels there. In October, after a year and a half of rebellion, Henry worked out peace agreements with his three sons and with Louis. Henry allowed his sons to have their lands and possessions back, but he wasn't as forgiving with his wife. Henry felt that Eleanor had stirred the sons to rebellion, and she had worked against him in alliance with her ex-husband. So Eleanor was kept under house arrest in various castles in southern England for the remainder of Henry's reign. Henry also dealt a harsh blow to William the Lion of Scotland. He forced William to sign a treaty that subjugated the Scottish nobles to the English crown and the Scottish clergy to the English church. William was also forced to surrender the strongest castles in Scotland. As a result of this treaty, Henry now had broad and sweeping rights over Scotland and its church. Before the failed rebellion, Scotland had been largely independent. But now it came under direct English control, and it remained squarely under Henry's thumb for the rest of his reign. No other ruler had ever had so much control over the British Isles. Scotland and most of Ireland had been added to Henry's realm, and most of the Welsh princes had recognized Henry as their overlord. This period, immediately after Henry's victory over the rebels, was the high point of his reign. None of his neighbors could challenge him, and Henry was widely viewed as the greatest ruler in Europe. A couple of years later, in the year 1177, Henry decided to give his youngest son, John, some territory as well. John was the favorite son, and he was also the son who didn't join the earlier rebellion. So at a council of barons in Oxford, Henry named John as the Lord of Ireland. John was only nine years old at the time, but he now had his own inheritance. Now, Henry's plans for succession may have seemed settled, but they were about to be upset by a series of deaths. First of all, in the year 1180... Louis Seventh died in France. He was succeeded by his son, Philip Augustus, known to history as Philip II of France. The young king was a far more ruthless and skillful king than his father, Louis. And it's really under Philip's reign that the balance of power started to shift back to the French kings. Three years later, in the year 1183, another major player in our story died. King Henry's son, young Henry, died of dysentery. With young Henry's death, all of his father's succession plans fell apart. Henry had to find a new successor, so he looked to the next oldest child, Richard. He called all three of his sons to a meeting and announced his new plans. All of young Henry's lands would now go to Richard. That included England, Normandy, and Anjou. But in exchange... Henry wanted Richard to give up Aquitaine in favor of the youngest son, John. It seemed like a good deal, but Richard balked at the idea of giving up his beloved Aquitaine. He'd been raised there, and he fully expected to inherit the region when his father died. And on top of that, he didn't really trust his father. Richard knew that young John was the favorite son, and he suspected that Henry would ultimately name John as his heir and he saw this demand to give up Aquitaine in favor of John as the first step in that ultimate outcome. So Richard stormed out of the meeting, and that left the matter unresolved. This meeting was soon followed by another death. In the year 1186, Henry's middle son, Geoffrey, died in a jousting tournament. So that left just two sons, Richard and John. Richard was the eldest child, and the presumed heir to most of Henry's empire. But he had fought and argued with his father for most of his life. John was clearly the favorite son, and Richard grew even more suspicious that John would eventually be designated as the heir. Increasingly, Richard made friends with the new young French king, Philip, and Philip fed Richard's suspicions that John was destined to take Henry's empire. In the year 1188, Conflict once again broke out between the Angevins and the French. Henry attacked Philip's lands, and Philip attacked Henry's lands in Normandy. In November, the parties held a peace conference to resolve the conflict. Henry, Philip, and Richard all attended the meeting. During the meeting, Philip couldn't help but acknowledge the elephant in the room. He asked Henry to confirm Richard as the lawful heir to Henry's empire. But Henry refused. And that was the ultimate breaking point between father and son. Richard and Philip then joined forces, and together they attacked Henry in northern France. And it was at this point that everything started to fall apart for Henry. He didn't have enough English troops with him in France at the time, so he was overwhelmed militarily. He had to rely on mercenaries, but he soon ran out of money to pay them, and they deserted him. And on top of that, Henry had become very ill. In June of 1189, Henry's forces were defeated at Le Mans in northwestern France. Henry then sent the bulk of his men into Normandy, but he was too sick to accompany them, so he retreated to a castle in Anjou, and he lay in bed for the next two weeks, sick and drained. On July 3rd, Henry managed to get out of bed to meet the young French King Philip to discuss peace terms. At the meeting, Philip reeled off a long list of demands, which amounted to Henry's complete surrender. Philip also demanded that Henry recognize Richard as his heir on both sides of the channel. During that meeting, Henry was so sick that he had to be held upright on his horse by his attendants. And having been defeated on the battlefield, and being gravely ill at the time, Henry had little choice but to give in and agree to the demands. Henry then returned to the castle and was placed in bed. And he immediately sent for a list of all his supporters who had gone over to Richard's side. The first name on the list was his young son, John. Henry's favorite son had abandoned him at his weakest and most vulnerable moment. The grief and shock was too much to bear. And Henry died three days later, on July 6th. He probably succumbed to his illness, but... Historians like to say that he died of a broken heart. With Henry's death, the massive empire passed to Richard. He became the new Duke of Normandy, and then he headed straight to London to be crowned as the new King of England. As I noted earlier, Richard became known to history as Richard the Lionheart, and his arrival in England coincided with the gradual return of English as a written language. So we'll leave Richard's story there for now and we'll turn our focus back to the history of English. It was around this time, when Richard came to power, that we find the next major text composed in English. This document is known as the Ormulum, and it's one of the oldest surviving documents composed in Middle English. Many scholars consider the final entries of the Peterborough Chronicle to be the oldest Middle English document. Now, about 30 or 40 years later, we have the next text. The exact date of this text is unknown, but it's generally dated to the last couple of decades of the 1100s. Since this is one of the few surviving documents from that transitional period between Old and Middle English, it's extremely important to English scholars because it's one of the few documents to capture the changes that were taking place at the time. The Ormulum is ultimately a religious document composed by a monk in the East Midlands of England. It's a collection of homilies or sermons, in some respects similar to the Lambeth homilies that I mentioned earlier in the episode. But this particular collection is not a copy of earlier homilies. It's the unique creation of its author, named Orm. Now you may be wondering how we know the name of the author and the name of the text. Well, the author tells us. He says that his name is Orm, and the book is called Ormulum. He writes, This book is named Ormulum because Orm it wrought. This book is named Ormulum for the that Orm it wrought. Now, the text isn't really considered to be a great work of literature. It's written in verse, but Orm didn't use conventional poetic styles, he didn't use rhyming or alliteration. And the text tends to be very repetitive in parts. But the Ormulum isn't important as a work of poetry or literature. It's important because it captures many of the changes that were taking place in English in the late 1100s. Orm begins the book with a dedication to his brother. So I thought it might be interesting to go through the opening lines of that dedication to get a feel for the language. In the dedication, Orm tells us that he has a brother named Walter. And Walter is his brother in three ways. They have the same parents, so they're natural brothers. They're also Christian brothers in faith. And third, they're both monks, so they're brothers in the monastery, where they've taken vows to follow the monastic rule. Orm then says that Walter asked him to translate part of the Gospels into English so that the common people of England could better understand them. Orm says that he has attempted to translate those teachings as best he could with the little wit and intelligence that the Lord has granted him. As we go through these lines, I'm going to give you a literal translation first so you can get a sense of the grammar and syntax. And then I'll give you the original Middle English version as Orm wrote it. Now, Brother Walter, my brother, after the fleshly kind, which meant my brother in flesh. You, Brother Walter, brother mean after they flesh is kind. And my brother in Christendom, through baptism, and through truth, which meant through faith. And brother mean i Christendom, thierch fulch and thierch And my brother in God's house, yet in the third way. And brother mean i God's house, yet the three divisa. Through that with which we have taken both, a rule book to follow thyost that with Haben taken bar AN book to fochen under the canon's order and life just as saint augustine set under canon curis hardin leef sois saint austin set i have done as you asked and performed your will Each have done sum thubad and fortheth they then i have wound or turned into english the gospel's holy lore. Each have a wind until English God spell his After that little wit that me, my Lord, has lent. After that little wit that may me haveth So from those passages we can hear a much more familiar form of English. The majority of the words have survived into modern English, even though the meanings may have changed over time. The word order is also closer to modern English. It's still evolving, but it's getting closer to a structure that we can recognize. There are also other signs of a language in transition. Orm uses the modern pronoun I, but he mixes it in with the older form each. His verb forms are also variable. Take the past participle of the verb show, as in I have shown. Orm uses both showen and showed. Literally, shown and showed. So that shows that some of the verb forms weren't completely settled at this time. Orm also shows some brand new English constructions. He added the word over to words like lord and king. And that produced the first known usage of the terms overlord and overking. He also gives us a preview of another compound word, which you may not have even realized was a compound word. That's the word alone. At first glance, alone looks like a variation of the word lone or lonely. But it's not. Words like lone and lonely and lonesome all came later as a variation of the word alone. Alone is actually a compound word. It combines the words all and one. So it meant all by oneself. Orm is the first known English writer to use the phrase, all one, with that meaning. He does it in a translation of part of the book of Matthew, the part where it says, Man shall not live by bread alone. He writes that man shall not be bread all a Literally, by bread all one live. So he still uses two distinct words, all and ane, which was all and one. He probably didn't invent that construction, but this appears to be the first usage in an English document. And all one was eventually shortened into a single word, all own. But over time, the pronunciation of that L in the middle shifted from the end of the first syllable to the beginning of the second syllable. And it went from all own to alone. And from there, alone was shortened to just lone and based on that new root we got words like lonely and lonesome. Orm was also the first English writer to use the word right as an adverb to mean very, as in he's a right good man. Orm talks of leading a life Richt well with God's helper right well with God's help. This usage still survives today, but it tends to be very colloquial and it's usually associated with an old-fashioned style of speech. So I said that the Ormulum was composed in the East Midlands, in the east-central part of England. But many scholars have analyzed the text to narrow it down to a more specific location. Based on a variety of factors, including Orm's spellings and his vocabulary and some of his unique dialect forms, most modern scholars think he lived somewhere in southern Lincolnshire, and that location is interesting because it's just north of Peterborough. So the Peterborough Chronicle and the Ormulum both appear to have been composed in the same vicinity within a few years of each other. And given that close proximity, you might expect the language of the Ormulum to be very similar to that of the Peterborough Chronicle. But it isn't. The language of the Ormulum is actually quite different. For one thing, it has a lot of spelling innovations. And that was probably because Orm intended for the text to be read aloud, so he wanted to make sure that the words were pronounced properly. And in fact, he specifically says that in the document. Now, I'm going to focus on Orm's spelling innovations in the next episode, because they reveal a lot about the evolving pronunciation of English at the time, at least in the East Midlands. But for the remainder of this episode... I want to focus on the words he chose to use. Now, I said that the language of the Ormulum was very different from the Peterborough Chronicle, and that's partly because the Ormulum shows a lot more Norse influence than the Peterborough Chronicle. In fact, many Norse words are recorded in English for the first time in the Ormulum. It shouldn't really be surprising that the document contains a lot of Norse words because Orm himself was probably of Scandinavian descent. Remember that the East Midlands had once been part of the Dane Law, where Viking settlement was extensive. And Orm is a Norse name. It meant serpent or snake in Old Norse. In fact, Orm and Worm are cognate. Orm is the Old Norse word, and Worm is the Old English word. Old Norse tended to drop the W sound before a vowel. That's why the Scandinavians had the god Odin, where the Anglo-Saxons had Woden, and the Scandinavians had Orm, where the Anglo-Saxons had Worm. Anyway, Orm may have been a descendant of those earlier Viking settlers, not only because of his name, but also because his English is heavily peppered with those Norse words. Most notably, Orm is the first English writer to use the Norse pronoun forms they and their, T-H-E-I-R. And he was one of the first to use the word them as well. As we know from prior episodes of the podcast, the T-H pronoun forms they, them, and their came from the Vikings. The Anglo-Saxons had he, hem, and hera, respectively. Over time, the Norse T-H forms pushed out the Old English H-forms. And that shows how great the Norse influence was, especially in the Old Danelaw region, like the East Midlands. And Modern English evolved out of those East Midland dialects. So some of that Norse influence seeped into Modern English, and that included some of those Norse pronouns. Again, Orm uses all three of those pronoun forms, they, them, and their. And with the exception of a late Old English document that uses a form of the word them, the Ormulum is the oldest surviving document to use those modern Norse pronouns. I should also note that the text sometimes used the Old English forms as well. Orm sometimes used both forms in the same phrase, like they himself, which is literally they themselves. So that suggests that both pronoun forms were mixed together at the time in the East Midlands. People must have used them somewhat interchangeably. But over time, the TH forms won out. The TH forms gradually spread southward, and the Old English H forms were essentially gone by the late 1400s. So Orm gives us some new pronouns from Old Norse. But he also gives us a lot of other new words from Scandinavia. And some of those words survived into modern English. And, in fact, they're very common words today. For example, Orm is the first English writer to use the words same and seem. Both of those words coming from Old Norse. And believe it or not, same and seem are cognate. They come from the same Indo-European root word. And the Old English word some also comes from that same root. So same, seem, and some are all related. So let's see how those words are connected. The ultimate Indo-European root was *sam*, which meant one or as one. That root produced a lot of words in English. Via Latin, it gave us words like single, simple, and similar. So from those words, we can see a direct connection to the Norse word same. I think we instinctively assume that the words similar and same are related, and they are, but it's actually a very distant relationship. Similar comes in via Latin, and same comes in via Scandinavia. As I noted, Orm uses the word same for the first time in the English language. Old English used yelik, which was an early form of the word alike. But now the word same came in. So it may not be surprising that words like same, similar, and single are related. But how are those words related to the Norse word seem? Well, the connection is kind of hard to follow. We have to go back to the original sense of the word seem in Old Norse. Remember that the Indo-European root word meant one or as one. And in Old Norse, it produced an early version of the word seem, which meant to fit together as one. If you imagine a puzzle, you might put together a lot of individual pieces to make one complete puzzle. So those pieces fit together. They're compatible and suitable. So if we extend that concept to a set of ideas, specifically two or more ideas that fit together, we start to get the original sense of the word seen. If I have an idea that fits into some larger world view, it may appear or seem to be true. So if my boss drives a fancy car and lives in a huge mansion, his lifestyle is the same as other rich men. So he seems to be rich too. So that's the ultimate connection between same and seem. But anyway, both words come from Old Norse, and both words were first used in the Ormulum. I noted earlier that the Norse words same and seem are also cognate with the Old English word some. Again, that word some has undergone some changes over the centuries. The original sense of the word some was one part of a larger whole. So earlier I gave the analogy of a puzzle. Well, in Old English, one piece of that puzzle might be called some. And we still have that sense when we refer to something Something is one thing selected out of a larger collection. Well, over time, that sense of one part of a larger whole was extended to apply to several small pieces out of a larger group. And that's the more modern sense of the word some. Now, I mention the word some because of its connection to words like same and seem, But I also mention it because Orm gives us the first known uses of two compound words using that word, some. Orm is the first English writer to use the terms somewhere and somewhat. Old English actually used a similar construction as somewhat. It was what littles, which was literally little what. But now Orm gives us somewhat. So we've seen that Orm used Norse words like they, them, their, same, and seem. Here are a few other Norse words that appear for the first time in the Ormulum. Orm gives us the first use of the words want, anger, scare, thrive, raise, meek, and bloom. Again, all Norse words. He also gives us the first known use of the Norse word skin. He uses it in the term skin," which was sheep's skin. Old English used the word hide. Orm also gives us the first use of the Norse word ill. He uses it in the sense of wicked or depraved. So he speaks of ill will and someone whose heart is ill. It was used in place of the Old English word evil. By the way, ill and evil do not appear to be related. Orm also gives us the first known use of the word blunt. The Old English word was unsharp or unsharp. Orm is the first English writer to use the Norse word clip to mean cut. And he's the first to use the Norse word bait to mean harass or attack. So if you bait me into doing something I don't really want to do, I'm using the word bait like Orm first used it. Orm also gives us the Norse word aloft. Old English had uphech, which was literally up high. He gives us the Norse word sly, for Old English crafty. And he gives us the Norse word wand, as in a magic wand. Old English had the word rod. Orm was also the first English writer to use the Norse word scold, but he didn't use it in quite the way we use it today. A skald was a poet in Old Norse. And Orm refers to skaldis, which he apparently used to mean minstrels. Norse skalds, or minstrels, were known for their rough speech. And the word skald, or scold, came to mean a person who used abusive language. So it was originally a noun. But about a century later, it started to be used as a verb, to mean to verbally abuse or chide. And that gave us the modern sense of the word, scold. Orm was also the first English writer to use the Norse word bound. It was used in the sense of ready or prepared. This initial usage has largely died out. You might hear someone say that they're ready and bound to go. And this led to a sense of the word as the place of destination, as in homeward bound, outward bound, or upward bound. In one part of the Ormulum. Orm discusses the well-known passage from the book of Matthew where Jesus goes into the temple and overthrows the tables of the money-changers. Referring to this passage, Orm writes, For that they turned God's house into a huckster's booth. For that they turned in God's house into a huckster's booth. Now this passage is interesting because Orm uses the phrase huckster's booth and this is the first known use of both of those two words in the English language. Huckster appears to be a borrowing from Dutch. And that would make it one of the first Dutch loanwords borrowed into English. And booth is another Norse word. Those words eventually replaced native English terms. The word cheap was an Old English word for a market or marketplace. And a huckster was a cheapman in Old English. It was literally a market man. And Cheapman actually gave us the surname Chapman. And a booth was originally a cheap settle, which was literally a cheap seat or a market seat. In an earlier episode of the podcast, we saw that that word cheap came to mean a bargain over time. And that gave us the modern sense of the word cheap to mean low cost or low in price. But thanks to Orm, we know that by the 1200s, a cheap mun was sometimes called a huckster, and a cheap settle was sometimes called a booth. I should note that Orm also used a lot of other Norse words, but many of them never really passed into Standard English. However, some did pass into Northern English dialects, where they still survive today. For example, Orm is the first known English writer to use the word "attle" to mean earn or produce. And that word still lives on in parts of the north of England. So, in the Yorkshire dialect, if you earn some money, you might addle some money. Or, in the local vernacular, you might addle some brass. I noted in earlier episodes that Norse words had probably been around for quite a while in the Old Danelaw region. They were probably there in the late Old English period. But those words aren't generally found in Old English documents because those documents tended to be written in the standard dialect of Wessex in the southwest. But now, with the loss of that written dialect, scribes tended to write as they spoke. And that's why a writer like Orm, who was writing in the Old Danelaw region, tended to use a lot of those Norse words. So we know that Orm used Norse words. But what about French words? Well, there are very few French loanwords in the Ormulum, despite the pervasive influence of French at the time. The text itself is nearly 20,000 lines long, but it has less than a dozen loanwords from French, and most of those never entered standard English. We do find the first use of the French word scorn in an English text, and it's a good example of why it can be so hard to identify the ultimate source of some of these words. The word scorn is ultimately a Germanic word. That SK sound at the beginning is a giveaway. The word eventually passed into late Latin and early French, and Orme picked up the word for the first time in English as scarn and scarned, literally scorn and scorned. Given the overall influence of French at the time, it's surprising that the Ormulum contains so few French words. Some scholars think that the omission was intentional, that Orme had an aversion to French words. He specifically says that he wants the text to be used as a preaching tool and read out loud to congregations. So maybe he felt that they were unfamiliar with those French words. But as we'll see in upcoming episodes, some of the other Middle English documents composed just a few years later were filled with French words. So the lack of French influence in the Ormulum is a bit of a mystery. It's even more of a mystery because Orm appears to be familiar with French. His writing style actually shows a lot of French influences. For example, he used a lot of French spellings. So he appears to have been trained in French spelling and writing. But Orm did more than replace Anglo-Saxon letters with French letters. He actually created his own unique spelling conventions. He devised a technique to distinguish short vowels from long vowels. And that's important because it confirms that the pronunciation of English words was changing during the early Middle English period. Next time, we'll look at how Orm and other Middle English scribes dealt with the changing sounds of English. Some of their innovations survived, and some didn't. But they greatly influenced the way we spell words today. So next time, we'll explore the sound of Middle English and the application of the alphabet to those sounds. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast.